0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. My name's Mike, if you don't know me. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the intro today because most of you know me. Um, I was at the morning service this morning and it's kind of funny like the differences between the morning service and like the evening service the key things are we all like to like sit right at the very back of the church and so when you get up to preach there's always all these empty rows and it's always very low lighting levels in here whereas the morning church you can see all the like floors in the plaster board and stuff like that <laughs> um anyway so let's just begin by reading our passage Um, And then we'll get into things. So we're reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 16. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, um, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for her, uh, for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair shaved, um, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, um, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, it is um, in the Lord woman is not independent of man. ...nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him... But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Pretty weird. (laughs) (laughs) So, I just want to start um, with a few caveats. Firstly, I'm not a woman. Um, I'm not joking. Like, I'm actually not joking. I think a lot of times in church, men have spent a lot of time telling women how to behave. And that's not my intention. Um, Secondly, I'm not quite certain exactly what is going on in this passage. And so if you disagree with me, that's okay. Okay. Come and chat to me about it after because I'd love to hear your thoughts and views um, because I've got a lot to learn. And thirdly, there are some little mentions of um, sexual abuse um, in this passage, um, only, sorry, in my sermon, only as it refers to the Roman context. But I just wanted to flag that so that if you have had experiences and need help, um, yeah, there are people here who you can chat to if you feel like that. Just whatever you need to do, do it is the point. So we're beginning a new sermon series today that explores how we do church together. And we've started as in, a, in a very weird place really, in a strange place. So today we're considering what 1 Corinthians 11 might teach us about our Life um, together as a community. And so I want to do this in two parts. I think first, we need to take a step back from the passage that's before us and actually examine how we approach scripture as a community, um, especially how we approach difficult passages, because we can do harm if we approach them in a bad way. (laughs) Then, Um, we'll engage more directly with the passage, um, with the content, and see how it might influence our communal life. So firstly, this passage helps us reflect um, on the Bible and how we use it, how it influences our communal life. The Bible is the word of God. It's the touchstone through which we discern his will and his way. And as we engage with the Bible, the Holy Spirit brings it to life in our hearts. He uses it to convict us, to reveal God's love and care for us, and to draw us to new life. That said, the Bible isn't always obvious, right? It is it isn't always super clear. The Holy Spirit doesn't just download a perfect interpretation of every passage we come across the first time we read it. At times we can find ourselves a bit stuck. And even Peter, the Apostle Peter, got stuck in the Bible. So that's okay. He looked at some of Paul's writings and he says in 2 Peter 3.16, and I, just, I think this is pretty funny, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I love Paul, but I definitely agree um, with Peter that there's some stuff that's just hard to get. And today we're exploring one of these kind of strange places in the Bible, and it feels like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle um, as we approach it. So the other day, I'm not sure if you've had the experience of getting on YouTube at like... I don't know, 8pm after a hard day, and then you're still there at 2am in some very strange place. Well, I stumbled across the world of professional jigsaw puzzling, which is apparently a thing. And I'm not really that into jigsaw puzzles. Sorry, if you are you can watch, I've got good news, you can watch three-hour-long live streams of the World Jigsaw Puzzling Championships. <laughs> Pretty exciting. And on top of that, you can access all this advice from some of the world's leading jigsaw puzzlers to improve your own game. And so I thought that this advice from professional puzzlers might help us reflect on our, pro- our approach to... Bible puzzles. So I've gathered some principles from these people um, that might help us piece together the passage before us. So firstly, professional puzzlers recommend by beginning your puzzle, by sorting it into its thematic groups, like by colour or whatever. But the crucial thing when you do this is to pay very close attention to each piece because some areas of the, colour, of the puzzle will have similar colours but actually be from very different places and so you need to be careful to, uh, to notice all the details otherwise you could get pieces mixed up. Likewise, as we read the Bible, it's easy to get confused and so we must pay attention carefully carefully to what's before us. There are a range, I think, of... uh, There's a range of troubling practices, I think, that can actually prevent us from seeing the Bible clearly. Some of these are more conscious. For example, this is what I'm a bit prone to, but when I have a question, I just skip reading the Bible altogether and then just jump onto Google. We also might just ignore or want to explain away what the Bible says. We may also want to impose our own assumptions on the Bible and cherry-pick passages out of context. Some of these practices are also more subconscious, and I think therefore more dangerous. We read Scripture, for example, with the baggage of our own culture our own era, our upbringing. This is dangerous because we imagine that we're reading the Bible exactly how it is, the plain reading, when really we're reading it through a lens of our own assumptions. And so these practices, the reason they're dangerous is because they can reshape the Bible into something that it isn't, something that it's not trying to say so that it better suits us. We often accuse, in particular, the other camp, right? The other theological camp of doing this. But it's something we all do. Rather than recreating the Bible into something it's not, studying the Bible is first an act of paying attention. We begin by observing the passage itself as it is. We read the whole thing through. We sort out what's known and what's not known in the passage, what's stated and what's not stated. And paying attention to Scripture, I think, also involves paying attention to ourselves We must grasp how our own context, our own assumptions predispose us to believe certain things about the world and we must admit honestly and humbly that we're all fallible human beings. So secondly, professional puzzlers also encourage us to build the border of the puzzle to start with. Lee's nodding along. Yep. (laughs) The border frames the boundary of the space you're working within. Likewise, correctly framing difficult Bible verses helps us to define the boundaries of their meaning, what they might mean. Building the frame begins with an understanding of the specific way that God chose to speak to us. Some people believe that the Bible just dropped out of heaven in English, probably the KJV. But in actual fact, the Bible is written in ancient languages, in many different genres, to specific people groups who are embedded in their cultures and in their historical circumstances. And so we need to understand um, their worlds to try and enter them to try to read the Bible as they would have understood it. So then professional puzzlers also start with the easy areas of the puzzle so that they don't get frustrated and give up early. And likewise, when we study scripture, um, we need to start with the clear areas. The Bible coheres as a big story, and an, an awareness of, um, confuse, sorry, and an, uh, an awareness of where a confusing passage fits within that story can help to clarify it. Now, occasionally, we discover that our puzzle is missing pieces, and while this is bad for your OCD there's actually still often enough information to imagine what the final picture likely is. And so we don't always have, actually, when we read the Bible, all the necessary background information that's going on behind the surface. And in these circumstances, informed extrapolation is required to fill in the gaps. However, when we do this, we must recognise that while scripture is inerrant, scripture is the word of God and authoritative, our, our extrapolations and our interpretations are not. And so that's a humbling thing. We must be open to possibilities. Finally, puzzles are best tackled with our friends. Others help us see connections that we might miss, we may miss. And our best friend is the Holy Spirit who uses the Bible to speak to us individually. But the Holy Spirit also speaks to other people. And so when we, so we should read and apply the Bible together as a community. We should have robust discussions. We should try to learn from each other. And... Thankfully, some of our friends are also very experienced at doing puzzles. They're like your nana. God has gifted the church with Bible scholars and translators and pastors who have extensively studied the Bible at an academic level and therefore can help us understand. So at this point, I think we're ready to begin looking at the puzzle that's before us, 1 Corinthians um, eleven three to sixteen. This is not an easy Bible puzzle. It's probably one of the more complex in the New Testament. And I haven't come away with a settled perspective on what it must absolutely mean. I've got some suggestions and some thoughts that I wanted to want to explore with you. And if you d- degree, if you disagree with me, as I said to start with, that's okay. And I would encourage you to come and chat to me after. So we're going to begin by building our frame and then we're going to sort out our pieces and then we're going to get some help from others. So firstly, let's begin with our frame, which is up on the screen. So the context. So the genre of 1 Corinthians, it's a letter. It's part of a larger conversation that Paul's having with the Corinthian church. And we know that Paul is addressing a particular previous letter from the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, as well as responding to um, some criticisms that had come from most likely some kind of allies, co-workers of his. However, reading 1 Corinthians can be a bit like listening to one side of a phone call. Its overarching themes are, you know, pretty... Obvious, pretty clear, you know, you can get what's going on. But we don't always get all the minutia, all the questions, the little situations that are going on and the problems that the letter addresses. And unfortunately, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 16 is basically one of those instances. We don't know the specific situation that the passage addresses. It's sort of as simple as that. However, we can pick up some clues from the the broader structure of 1 Corinthians. Paul has planted a church in the Roman colony of Corinth and people from all different backgrounds are coming to this church from all different classes, genders, ethnic backgrounds. And so this means that there's some issues, there's teething issues. They're struggling to get along with each other. And it expresses itself in a range of ways. For example, they're having all these fights about which Christian teacher is the best. Um, and there seems to be an, a, a group of bigwigs um, who are beginning to dominate the proceedings. Paul's apostleship is being questioned, and abusive sexual misconduct abounds. And then in chapters 11 to 14, where our verse lies, Paul specifically addresses issues related to their worship practices, their gathering as a community. So he addresses things like lower status people being excluded from the Lord's table, which Nick is going to talk about next week. Paul's aim in all of this is to correct these theological and practical issues by encouraging the Corinthians to reframe their priorities around the gospel. So the last factor um, that we're going to frame up is our cultural context. So there's a range of things from the culture that may bear on our passage, and I just don't have time to go through them all. So much interesting stuff out there that you can learn there is a big dif- distance between the Roman world and our world and we really we need a bit of an awareness to, um, of those differences when we come to this passage. So the first thing to be aware of is that people, the main way that they judged their value and the, the value of others was al- along lines of honour and shame. So their priority was to gain recognition and to protect their own status. Roman society was also strictly patriarchal, like strictly patriarchal. Men were superior in every every way, in terms of power and status, value and honour. And crucially, women didn't even possess, they weren't thought of even having their own honour. Their actions only contributed to the honour and shame of their family members, their male family members. On top of all of this, and probably because of this, sexual misconduct and abuse was normalised in Roman society. Basically, powerful men thought they could do whatever they want and they did whatever they want. Interestingly, um, a woman's hair was thought to be a key beauty accessory and uncovered hair... Um, indicated that you were available. so on top of all of this, Roman law governed that men what men and women could wear in public, and these laws were tied pretty strictly to class. So for example, only a respectable married woman could wear a veil when venturing outdoors. And this veil was a status symbol. But it also indicated that she was married and therefore unavailable and married to someone of a high class. And so it was actually illegal for a man to harass a woman who was wearing a veil. But it was also illegal for women who were low status to wear a veil, like prostitutes and slaves and adulterers, Given that uncovering your head signified that you were available, this put these women in a pretty horrendous situation. They essentially had no choice. They were forced to signify that they were available to men. And so you can imagine that it's quite likely that low-status women would have wanted to wear a veil to protect themselves from this kind of harassment. So now that we have a bit of a frame, let's sort and examine carefully some of the pieces that we have and try to see, yeah, what we have, but also maybe what's missing, what we don't have in this passage. So it's important to note at this point that we aren't certain about much (laughs) in this passage So there's going to be probably loose ends in what I've got to share. But I'm going to focus on three key key areas of tension. Um, And I think they give a good indication of what's sort of going on in the rest of the passage. So the first area, and maybe you can skip to the next slide. Unfortunately, I had these all animated, so they like fly in as the puzzle gets built. But our software can't do that, which is sad. But anyway, the first area of tension begins in verse 3. Paul says, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of man is God. Oh, sorry, of Christ is God. So Paul uses the word head, which in Greek is kephale, as a metaphor for the relationship between men and women. And as English readers... We often assume that the meaning of head is obvious. We automatically replace the puzzle piece we've got here, head, with something like authority. This is understandable because in English, head usually has a silent honcho on the end of it. But (laughs) kephale in Greek actually has other possible meanings. Something like chief is possible, although it's apparently very rare in Greek literature. The Greeks had many other ways of many more commonly used words to denote a ruler. And given that the Greeks and the Romans were no strangers to male domination as we've seen, I think it's very interesting that Paul doesn't use any more of these explicit words it can also mean something like life source or origin or beginning. It's like an, like a, the, I think it's sort of similar to saying like a trailhead, like the beginning of a trail. It's an image of life flowing from the head to the body. And later in this verse, these verses in verse 12, I think Paul maybe hints at this possibility. Look out for it. It could also be part of a head-body metaphor that indicates primarily connection. The head and the body are inseparable. We all know that heads without bodies are dead heads and bodies without heads are dead bodies. (laughs) Likewise, men and women need each other is maybe the image. Unfortunately, we aren't exactly sure about the exact meaning. Of of And so, yeah, there's some questions associated with it. The next area of tension arises in verses 4 to 6. Paul says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as being shaved. So, in these verses, Paul is introducing the issue that's going on. So we know that his concern has something to do with dress code of women and men when the church gathers. And in some way, the Corinthians are disregarding his expectations, maybe what he's previously taught them. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't indicate what these naughty Corinthians, exactly we're doing. He says men are covering their heads while women are uncovering their heads. In Greek, covering apparently is literally having down the head and uncovering is literally covered as to the head. So it's a little bit ambiguous and we aren't exactly sure But it's likely that Paul is either referring to something like a veil or head covering or he's referring to long hair for men and long hair that is tied up for women. We don't know. So it's also important just to recognise the specific context of Paul's instructions. He's talking about the context of praying and prophesying. And it's really important to note here that women are praying and prophesying and it's an assumption that he makes. He just assumes that to be the case. He isn't discussing whether or not women should lead the gathering. He is only concerned with dress code. Now, it's typically assumed as well that it's the women who are causing all the trouble in Corinth. At least in this passage. And they're doing something like throwing off their head coverings or something like that. But I think this is a little bit unlikely given Paul's opponents in 1 Corinthians are probably a group of dominating men. I find it quite hard to imagine a scenario where men who are holding the power in this church aren't involved in the problem. And in fact... Paul's first correction is directed at men, so the target audience of this passage is not just women. It's women and men. They're both involved in what's going on. It isn't just focused on women's dress, but both men and women's dress. So you're probably likely asking at this point, what on earth is the the big deal of all this, and. It's good because I think the passage does give us a bit of information of what's at stake in Corinth. Firstly, we see in verses 4 to 6 that the issues related to dress code, whatever they are, are causing a level of shame. Whatever the Corinthians are doing, they're attracting attention to themselves and are bringing shame on God, themselves and each other. Now, Paul doesn't exactly say how headdress, men and, men and women's dress codes, is actually how it's exactly kind of connected with honour and shame. But we'll see later that the cultural context might help fill in some things here. And then in verses 7 to 9, Paul offers another argument to support um, whatever his dress code is. Verse 7 says, A man... Ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. On the surface, this seems pretty like troubling to us as modern Western people. Is Paul suggesting that men shouldn't cover up because they're closer to God? Is he saying that only men are the image of God? Do women need need to go through a man to access God? This is the final area of tension that I want to address. And rather than jumping to conclusions, we need to use our puzzling skills, our puzzle skills of careful observation more than ever in this verse. So firstly, notice what Paul doesn't say. He carefully avoids saying Woman is the image of man. He does not deny that women are also created in the image of God. Paul also doesn't say that women only bring glory to men. Elsewhere, Paul teaches that both men and women bring glory to God. The whole body of Christ can bring glory him. So in verses 8 to 9 Paul explains what he means, how the woman brings glory to man. He says for man did not come from woman but woman from man, neither was man created for woman but woman for man. Woman is the glory of man because she comes from him and was created for him. Paul in this passage, is alluding most likely to the creation narrative of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 to clarify what he means by glory. In Genesis 2, God makes Adam from the dust and then he takes Eve from his rib to be his partner, from his side. Genesis 2 sheds light on what Paul um, may mean when he says woman is created from and for man. So let's quickly look at this. So firstly, what does he mean by from man? Well, Adam was first, was created first, but this in, in the Genesis 2 narrative does not indicate that he's given authority over her. I was created before my younger brothers, Sam and Nick, And it's pretty hard for me to admit, but that doesn't make me their their superior. (laughs) You see, Adam in the creation narrative didn't play any part in Eve's creation. He was in a deep sleep when Eve was made. So he has no claim to extra privileges because Eve came after him. So if from man isn't trying to show authority or a hierarchy. What is it about? Well, I think it shows that Adam and Eve are made from the same stuff. Verse 23 of Genesis 2 makes this very clear in my mind. When Adam sees his new partner, he bursts into song. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The point is that they are tied together in a relationship that can't be separated, that can't be severed. Verse 18 of Genesis 2 then goes on to clarify the sense in which God made woman for man. God says, it is not good that the man be alone. I will make a helper To be his partner. See, it's Adam who's lacking something in this picture. He was alone. Eve wasn't created to be Adam's servant, but because Adam needed her. In both these instances, Genesis 2 is emphasizing the affinity. And the interdependence, the mutuality of Adam and Eve. And this is the imagery that Paul is drawing on in this passage. He's using it, I think, to remind the men at Corinth, probably those bigwig guys who are trying to dominate, that they depend on their sisters in Christ necessarily and that that dependence can't be separated or shouldn't be separated. So... The covered and uncovered head situation, the issue is that in some way it's undermining this interdependence. And again, like the shame thing, the fact that the head covering is, what's going on with the head covering, sorry, might not be the head covering, but what's going on might cause shame. We don't know exactly what this connection is. We don't know exactly how Paul thinks that the two are related. But the next verses reinforce the conclusion we've made about um, interdependence. Verses 11 to 12 say, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So, verses, we often read verses 7 to 9 separately from the rest, from these verses that we've just looked at. But the Paul's assertive, nevertheless, indicates that they're connected, that he wants these verses to be seen as a unit together. Paul seems worried, right, that the Corinthians might understand what he's just said. And so he's qualifying it. It's true, yes, that man was created first, but the man also comes through woman and ultimately Both, most importantly, come from God. So while woman is man's glory, Paul clarifies that this doesn't mean that men deserve special significance in the body of Christ. God has arranged things so that in the Lord, men and women depend on each other. Now, just as a little aside, there's this interesting verse in the middle of all this. Verse 10, and Paul says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. In the ESV and some other translations, it reads a symbol of authority. This is an addition. It's not in the original Greek. The expression in Greek, to have authority, always means your own authority. And so in the midst of all this uncovering and and uncovered stuff, Paul affirms a woman's freedom and authority over her own head. It is not the man's duty to enforce a certain dress code. So let's summarise the puzzle pieces that we have so far. There's something going on. With the, with the Corinthians' dress when they pray and prophesy. And it's bringing shame on God, on the community, on each other, on themselves, and eroding the inter, interdependence of men and women. But we also have a few missing pieces, and there's two particularly important ones. The first is that we're missing, like we've mentioned, some of that background information that would be really helpful to know what's going on. And then secondly, it's not really clear exactly how uncovered and covered heads are related to shame. And it's not clear how um, uncovered and covered heads are related to interdependence. We don't really know the connection. So we're going to get some help from some professional friends to fill in these gaps or try to. And they will help us to do some extrapolation from the context to reconstruct the specifics of the scenario that's occurring. Because this is of uncertain passage, I wanted to show, um, I, I, yeah, I, I would have loved to bring in more views but I've only got two because we don't have much time. <laughs> so the first is probably the more common view and this fills out our missing piece about the situation what's going on, by arguing that the head covering signified a customary in the culture distinction between men and women. And they were ignoring this when they prayed and prophesied and it was a drawing um, unnecessary attention to the community. And so Paul is arguing that they should use their freedom um, to avoid causing shame on others so some speculate that this error, error emerged in the Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, because they were taking some of Paul's other ideas too far, like that there's no male or female. This also helps us fill in the connection, maybe, between dress code and shame. The dress of the Corinthians disregarded maybe cultural cultural differences and caused shame which was distracting from their message and was causing scandal. And so the proponents of this view argue that Paul thought that those who were leading the community should respect and care for others, for their community, by trying to avoid bringing shame on others, even if this meant forgoing their own rights. This also might help us with that missing connection between dress code and eroding interdependence, we can see that maybe this disregard of the difference between men and women is undermining the fact that they rely on each other. I think some people, though, get off track at this point by overemphasising the importance of gender differences. They apply this passage by trying to categorise them all very stereotypically They try to lay them out. But the actual content of the difference is of secondary importance to Paul in this passage, if this is what it's about. What is key to him is the interdependence of men and women at Corinth. And so he might be using this this, um, point about difference to reinforce the key point about interdependence. He's calling, in other words, the Corinthians to celebrate both men and women, which is hard to do if there aren't any differences at all. So the second view that we're going to quickly look at is from the Bible scholar Cynthia Westfall. She has a very interesting book called um, Paul and Gender, which is worth having a look at. And it presents a very interesting view. She argues that a powerful faction in the church at Corinth is trying to reassert Roman norms about status and dress code, which Paul has previously reshaped. She explores the Roman customs that we've previously um, mentioned to explain what the head covering would have actually meant for men and women in Corinth. A veil for them didn't signify subordination. We saw that a woman's veil in their culture was a status symbol, as well as a warning to would-be attackers that this woman was protected by the law. It signified that the wearer was unavailable and respectable men couldn't attack without penalties. She argues that most women in Corinth um, would have wanted to veil. Corinthian women who didn't have a cultural right to wear a head covering were taking them up as a protection and to indicate their new status in Christ wearing a head covering may have been a dignifying and equalising sign for Corinthian Christian women of lower classes. And so Cynthia argues then that the dispute that's going on in this passage has arisen because some men were pressuring these women to unveil. And she suggests that there might be two reasons for this. The first is it might be because of predatory behaviour the kind of which was common in Roman society. But the more likely, the view she thinks is more likely is that men wanted to keep certain classes of women uncovered for the purpose of preserving the honour of those who they thought deserved to veil. The powerful people aren't comfortable with these lower status women challenging their social position and the social position of their families. And so Paul is siding with these women who wish to wear veils and trying to give the men theological reasons why the women should have freedom to choose to veil if they wish to do so. And so if this view is correct, it would seem that Paul's comments about shame and honour are designed to reshape Roman cultural expectations about what brings honour and shame. Men bring shame on themselves when they force a woman to unveil is maybe his point. True honour doesn't come as the Corinthians impose their will and way, but when they surrender power and privilege for the sake of the weak. And so public worship also isn't an occasion for women to become objects of attraction or symbols of status. Men and women must protect and celebrate each other as fellow human beings, as interdependent brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to finish up. But before we do, we're going to quickly look at what all of this might actually have to do with our church, with Hills Baptist in the 21st century. And although this passage focuses on all, these, all this minutia about dress code in the ancient world, I think it gives us some bigger principles that we might use to guide how we gather together. So the first that I want to talk about is that Paul's focus is on interdependence and, and not domination it's likely that Paul wants women to wear head coverings. Sorry, <laughs> that just changed the whole meaning of what I was about to say. It's unlikely that Paul wants women to wear head coverings as a symbol of the, the authority of men over them. In fact, in this passage, the only authority actually mentioned explicitly is that of the women over their own heads. And so Paul counterpoints this whole Roman patriarchal order with a vision, a new vision of mutual interdependence of men and women in the Lord. And I thought today, I wonder if he had in mind that passage in Joel where it says, well, I think it says something along the lines of their daughters and their sons will prophesy. In God's community, old systems of status power-seeking, including this, all this male dom- domination in the Corinthian church, are being overturned. Authority is shared as people lay down their lives for each other. The powerless are protected and lifted up to places of honour and it's all a self-reinforcing loop. The body of Christ is linked together in a community of mutual love and concern as they lay down their lives for each other. So my second thing that I think we can apply today is that Paul celebrates the differences of men and women. A healthy church celebrates our interdependence together, the fact that we rely on each other. We must proceed carefully, though, at this point, as I've previously mentioned. It's not about categorising all those differences and then imposing stereotypes or something like that. It's, about, it's not about working out the content maybe so much. Instead, the difference between men and women is important to pull primarily because it reinforces our interdependence. If men and women are just completely the same, then why would men need women? Couldn't you just have men do all the talking and all the leading and lose nothing? Men miss out when women are barred from using their gifts. We all miss out. And I think that our preaching roster should reflect this. Paul takes it for granted in this passage that women are leading the church in prayer and prophecy. And now it's important to recognise here that prophecy in the early church wasn't just, you know, predicting the future or something like that. It was the in the primary form of inspired speech directed at the whole community. It's what I'm doing. Paul's teaching about respectful dress wasn't designed to oppose women who led the community in prayer or prophecy. His aim was to enable them to use their giftings with dignity and with respect. And I hope that our church becomes increasingly a place where women speaking, prophesying, teaching, leading at all levels and using their giftings is just taken for granted, like Paul takes it for granted. In our church life, if our church life becomes dominated by one type of person, that's an issue. God desires a diverse and unified community where we're all empowered to use our gifts, the gifts that God has given us. And then finally, whether the passage addresses men who are forcing women to uncover or a group disregarding the differences between men and women, the Corinthians are using the worship service, the public gathering of believers, to advance their own interests for the sake of their own honour. Unlike the Romans, whose focus was on protecting themselves from shame, Paul calls the Corinthians to use their freedom to protect others from shame, even if this means sacrificing their own honour. The worship gathering is not about honour-seeking, but about honouring others. Sometimes um, this, sorry, Paul wants the Corinthian community to order their practices around the self-sacrificing example of Jesus who was ashamed in the most ultimate way so that we might be honoured. And sometimes this means dramatic action, but a lot of the time it's pretty simple. It it extends right down to the way that we dress. It's a complete transformation of everything, of every factor of our life around the example of Jesus who laid down his life. All right, let's finish up and pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you haven't left us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you, Lord, that we can know you through, our wo- through your words and that you teach us and lead us and guide us. Lord, we pray um, that we wouldn't just try to shape Scripture to suit our, you know, desires, but that we would carefully listen to it and transform our lives around it. And so, Lord, yeah, I just pray um, that we would be a community that is willing to be ashamed for others, that we would be a community where we honour others above ourselves and where we lay down our lives, where we follow the self-sacrifice and example of Jesus. Amen.